Welcome to the Augusta Golf Show podcast. Now, here's John Patrick. Lisa Cornwell is an established golfer and broadcaster of note, playing some of her college golf at the University of Arkansas. We'll get into that. Um, she is a four-time Arkansas State amateur champ. She began working at Golf Channel back in 2014. She is no longer with the network. Her new book, out later this month, is called Troublemaker, a memoir of sexism, retaliation, and the fight they didn't see coming. It is a pleasure to welcome Lisa Cornwell to the Augusta Golf Show for the very first time. How are you, Lisa? Hi, John. I'm great. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you for the first time. Well, see, see, now I, I feel like I owe you an apology. Um, you have covered the game for a long time. I'm, I'm 16 years of doing this program. I wanted to pick up the phone. I wanted to talk to you about golf. I never did. This is when I pick up the phone and get in touch with you. Um, so thank you for saying yes. Well, my pleasure. You don't have anything to apologize about. There are a lot of great people who you can have on your show. And um, look, it, for me, it's great timing. I, I love being able to talk about golf and, of course, to talk about the book that's coming out soon. So it's uh, it's it's really nice to be with you. Um, are you excited? Are you nervous? Is it first tee jitters? How do you feel about And the book comes out in a couple of weeks. How do you feel about this? I think that's a good way of putting it. No one said that first tee jitters. That's pretty good. I don't have those jitters yet. I think it's probably like I'm on the range warming up. But, you know, once once that date gets here, May 23rd, you're, uh, I don't think you could have said it better. I, I really anticipate that I will have some first tee jitters, not, not over the success or failure of the book. I mean, I didn't write this book for that. I wrote it for me and, you know, for other women who have been through similar stories and men too. Um, and a lot of folks at Golf Channel who understand the whole culture that was in place. So I think for those reasons, it was, it was cathartic. I think that I'll be, I'll have those jitters just because I do talk more about my personal life and, and some things in my childhood that I reveal, like, like most memoirs do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think just putting myself out there like that, I'm a pretty private person, so I'll probably be a little jittery over that, but it won't take long. I mean, the feedback has been really good, and I, I really appreciate people who've reached out about it and are, are interested in the story. Do you anticipate checking your phone numerous times on that day? Will I be checking my phone? Yes. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to anticipate what I will be doing. Um you know, I work for PGA Tour Live that uh, right now, and um, I was working that week, and so they were gracious enough to switch me weeks so I could not have the distractions. So I can't, uh, I can't imagine how many times I'll be checking the phone, <laughs> but hopefully the messages will all be good. Um, how'd you get started playing golf? You know, like a lot of kids, I was fortunate that my parents were members at a at a small club in my hometown, and we had a really good young junior program. My sister played. And my sister wasn't really an athlete. And so I, you know, she was able to play and I wasn't quite old enough to do it. And I thought, well, this isn't, this isn't fair. I'm just going to show her and beat her (laughs) because, you know, everything to me was always a competition. And I just fell in love with the game early on. Uh, You know, I, instead of going to the swimming pool during my summers, I was out on the range. I just had a lot of great friends who we all kind of grew up playing the game together. And you know, I think that we're we're just fortunate to have that in our lives and be around it. And it, you know, it it went from being a hobby to something that I cared passionately about. And just that quest to get better, I think that we all still have 
that's the the wonderful, compelling thing about this game. You know, I was five years old when I started, and I wanted to get better. And some people pick it up when they're 60, and they have that drive to get better. And so it's just that constant quest to try to figure out something that might take you to the next level. And and you won at a very early age, didn't you? I did, yeah. I um, I weren't, It's funny because I talked my way into a tournament that my sister was playing in when she was 10 and I was 6, and the age limit was 8 to play. <laughs> and my dad dropped me off, and they were just going to watch me and let me hang out and watch my sister, and I ended up talking them into letting me play. So I won my first tournament when I was 6 against the 10-year-olds, and my sister just was so furious. And... From that point on, I thought, well, I, I love this competitive side of the game. And, yeah, I started winning local tournaments and statewide tournaments for my age group. And I think when I was about 12 or 13, it was pretty clear that, you know, that I had something special with the game and worked hard at it and won my first women's state tournament when I was 14, the youngest ever, and I think still the youngest ever in Arkansas history. So, you know, my my career was short in terms of, my age span, I won those four titles between like 14 and 22 and didn't even play in all of them. I suffered burnout, and I talk about that in the book. So, yeah, I mean, it's like it's great. I'm glad that I got through that burnout phase, got my competitive golf out of the way. And now, like everybody else, I just love the game again. Not as a competitor. I have no desire to tee it up in any event. But it's just it's been a blessing, and it's been a huge part of my life. We're talking with Lisa Cornwell here on the Augusta Golf Show. Did you have thoughts back then of, of turning professional? It's all I wanted to do. Um, you know, so many of my friends went on to to play professionally, including Tiger. You know, we grew up and we were good friends as junior golfers playing the AJGA. I talk, there is a, a chapter in there. I tell some, some pretty funny stories. Colonel Woods, Tiger's dad, was really like a mentor to me and, mm. and worked with me a lot on the mental side of the game, the way that I practiced. And, um, you know, from, from what I learned from Colonel Woods, it, it, there's no doubt why Tiger has gone on to do what he's done. It's just the Green Beret mentality that Colonel Woods instilled in Tiger. And so to be around that and to, to sort of reap some of those, those deep knowledge sessions of the game from Colonel Woods, it, it did help. I mean, I wish that I'd, I had more of it because, you know, we always work on golf swing or putting or chipping, but there's this whole mental side that, that Colonel Woods instilled in Tiger and tried to teach me some of it. Although obviously I ended up talking about golf, so I didn't quite take to it like Tiger did. But yeah, it's just a very well-rounded sort of lesson and life lesson that I was able to get from, you know, from these young experiences growing up around these great players. I mean, you know, there, there were a lot of golfers. Stuart Sink played in the AJGA when I was there. You know, numerous, numerous winners on, on the LPGA and PGA Tours. Why, why didn't you go pro? Well, I, I do dive in deep into that in the book. Okay. I, I, I did suffer an extreme amount of burnout, and it was for various reasons. And I think that, you know, back then you just really didn't talk about things that were going on. You know, we're, we're hearing athletes and golfers and all sorts of folks talk about mental health issues and how important it is in the mental side of the game. Back then, I had no idea what that was. I just thought if you talked about that, you were, you know, you were weird. So I do take a deep dive and reveal some of that stuff that I went through that I think led to that burnout period that, that really did last for quite some time. There was, a, there was a time when I didn't want to pick up a golf club, and that's all I wanted to do for a living. So it was really a struggle, I think, in my 20s to sort of 
find my identity outside of golf. I had no idea then that I would end up going into TV and working in golf, but I mean, it ended up being such a great blessing and uh, really a big surprise considering what I went through. How, how did the broadcasting career come about? I had friends who were in weather. I was living in Little Rock at the time, trying to figure out what in the world I wanted to do. And they did weather for the local NBC affiliate. And I just fell in love with it because it, to me, it was the closest thing that, that felt like I was playing sports. And there was this adrenaline rush. There was this competition to, you know, to get the best information out there. And I was in sales at the time and making pretty decent money. I mean, for, you know, somebody in my late 20s. And I just knew immediately that that was what I wanted to do. I went back. I already had my my bachelor in uh, pre-law, didn't go to law school, and then went back and got a minor in broadcast journalism and then kicked things off. Had my first sports TV job in Columbus, Mississippi, making $18,000. My family thought I was crazy to take a $40,000 pay cut. <laughs> but um, I was off and running, and I loved it and never looked back. It's impossible to explain to people how this industry gets in your blood, isn't it? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> even the thought of fully stepping away, I, it would be really difficult because even doing what I'm doing now for the PGA Tour, there is still that adrenaline rush of, okay, you know, you hear the countdown and it's time to go. You know how it is yep. doing your show. Yep. So, it, yeah, 100%. Um, tell me how the Golf Channel came about. So I was working at the Big Ten Network and... I had been doing that for four or five years after getting out of local TV. And I was just, I wasn't really fulfilled with what I was doing. I just felt like something was missing. So I hired an agent for the first time in my career. And he asked me if, if I would ever consider Golf Channel. I said, I don't know. You know, I'm kind of on the fence. I just started to play golf again. So it was interesting timing. And I kept playing more golf and I kept sort of falling in love with it all over again, but in a different way, not in the competitive way that I had in the past. Mm -hmm. And so he asked me again about six months later, he said, look, and, and I got on a couple interviews that none of them really seemed that interesting, like ESPN news and MLB in New Jersey. And he said, okay, he goes, I, I have found out that there is an opening at golf channel if you're interested. And I said, okay, I think at this point I might be interested so I went to my first audition. That went well. About three months later, they brought me down for a second audition, and that went well and ended up signing a contract a couple months later. And doing what when you first got there? Hosting Golf Central. Mm -hmm. That was my primary role. I didn't, I didn't really get out and do any kind of reporting or interviewing. It was just working in studio. And I will tell you, and I, I do talk about this in the book, I... Uh, I was incredibly, I felt like I was, it was like an out of body experience. I put all this pressure on myself because not only was it the pressure of being on live TV for a national network, but now it was doing that with a game that I loved and, you know, that I knew people respected me with, that I had credibility. And so I felt like if I failed, then all that credibility would just be completely shot. So it really took me about a year, year and a half before I, before I felt comfortable in that role there. And, you know, as time went on, you, you gain confidence and you feel more comfortable doing it. And, you know, by the end of my time, it was, it was like I'd been there forever. It was, uh, I call it in the book, I, I call it a dream job. And really, for somebody with my background, it was. 
there were just some bumps in the road that unfortunately kept that from really fulfilling that whole dream job philosophy. So it's been an interesting ride for sure. Um, but look, I don't regret it at all. I mean, I've made lifelong friends. I still talk to so many folks from Golf Channel. I get to see a lot of them at PGA Tour Live. They've started a lot of the folks I worked with work there now. And um, yeah, look, it, it has overall been a blessing, minus just a couple, couple people who made it the difficult road that it was in the end. We're talking with um, Lisa Cornwell here on the Augusta Golf Show. When it was when it was good, what was the best thing about it? Well, the people. First of all, I worked with. I mean, there's so many good people who who just love their job. It felt like a family in a way with with most of us. So I think from that side, from the employee side, it was that. But then for me, getting out on tours, especially the LPGA tours, and you know, getting getting to know the players and the caddies and and the agents and the coaches. I mean, I'm I'm such a swing geek. I would love to get out there and talk to the the swing coaches and still keep in touch with a lot of them. And I think really just sort of doing and talking about what I love to talk about and. You know, I'm not, I guess when it comes to golf, I'm not really a fluff reporter because, you know, I mean, I want to talk about uh, whatever a player's working on. You know, if it was Ricky Fowler and going to John Tillery for the first time, I wanted to talk to Ricky about technically what they were working on. And that's, I think that that's where I thrived and really stood out in, in what I did. It's certainly what I enjoyed the most and probably what I missed the most is just being out there and really doing those deep dives into the conversations of the game and overall what they're working on, both physically and mentally, and what they're trying to do to get better. I mean, again, it's the story of the game that has brought all of us to it. Did you get a sense, Lisa, in talking about those sorts of things? And many times it sounds like some of the things that they really don't give up easily. Did you get a sense that they appreciated that kind of conversation? 100%. 100%. I mean, I I definitely felt respected by the players out there and and the swing coaches and the caddies because like we all know, it's pretty easy to identify if you know golf or not. I mean, there's so much to the sport. It's a hard sport to cover for anybody who doesn't really know it. And I think that it was pretty obvious to the, to the, especially, I would say, especially the guys, you know, like it's probably harder for a PGA tour player to have a, a woman come out there if they don't know your history in the game and sort of question, okay, does she know the technical side? We're talking about the swing here. But it didn't take long to to really win them over and had great conversations about it. So, you know, I miss being out there. I miss I miss talking to those guys about those sorts of things. I did it some on the LPGA tour, but the women don't they don't take that deep dive as much as the men do. And so, you know, I, I appreciated covering the tours for different reasons, I guess. When did things start to go sideways at Golf Channel? Oh, boy. Um, there were some early instances that I could tell that there were conflicts there that I didn't realize that would end up being job-ending conflicts. And I, I talked a lot about the issues that I had with Brandel Chambly and, but I never in my life thought that it would affect my job down the road. But as time went on and and these little small dominoes started to fall and you could see the alignment with, with certain higher ups among these higher level employees like, like Brandel, 
you could you could just see it. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint, and it's really hard to explain without without telling the full story in the book. That was the beauty of the book because they're like these these small instances that happen, but then they happened repeatedly. I can tell you when I knew that my job was over, and that was when NCAA's were being held in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I was the first scholarship player in the post Title IX era. I'm from Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Uh, the university had asked me to write the NCAA on its behalf to have the NCAA golf championships hosted at, at the Blessings. And then when they got it, it was a big deal. And it was a big deal for me because I had always hosted the women's NCAA championship. So shortly after the latest conflict with Brandel Chambly, about three months later, I find out that I'm not, uh, I'm not hosting, that I've been demoted to an on-site reporter. And, you know, like one month prior, it had just been announced that I was being inducted into the Arkansas Golf Hall of Fame. Like all of these things, it was a very personal move, you could tell. And nobody would give me an answer. Nobody would explain it. And I go into into detail exactly how it unfolded in the book. But that was when I knew that my job with Golf Channel was over. It's hard to explain to somebody who's not in a broadcast industry just how terrible we are at communications. We're just... <laughs> Awful internally. Um, We're talking with Lisa Cornwell here on the Augusta Golf Show. Writing the book, deciding to write the book, was was that a difficult decision? No, not at all. I knew that I wanted to get my full story out there. There were a lot of things that I didn't say. And, you know, I had had tweeted about it. I had gone public on social media and the Washington Post did this, this deep investigative story that, you know, involved a lot more people other than just me. But I was never able to fully convey on Twitter, you know, with the character limit, exactly why I was so angry when all of this happened. And so, yeah, the decision was was very easy because I wanted to get the story out there. I wanted to explain what had happened. Um, I thought that I deserved that for myself. And after talking to a lot of other people who, who suffered sort of the same instances, I wanted to be able to talk for them because most of them were too afraid to say anything. I mean, there was there was real fear that resided in a lot of these women, women who had lost their jobs, women who were forced to sign NDAs and not talk about it, or they'd lose their benefits and severance package. So, I mean, there were a lot of conversations that happened shortly after I made this announcement from people contacting me. And it was just the story after story involving a lot of the same people. And it was it was hard to believe, really, but then you felt like you had support. And so it was really motivation, I think, in, in the first place to write the book. Were you surprised at how many people had gone through something similar? Yes and no. Um, I think initially I was just I was shocked that the similar stories just kept coming to me. But then when you think about the culture and the people who were making these decisions, it wasn't shocking because if they allow it to happen to one person and then they allow it to happen to another person, because I had witnessed a couple of other people who I'd tried to go to bat for some horrible things that had happened from some higher ups and nobody, nobody paid the price for what they did. And they were, they were pretty egregious uh, violations. So no, I mean, I think the number of people who instantly came to me, I think I was surprised about. But the fact that they existed, no, I was not. 
And I think you've mentioned, especially in the last couple of weeks, you've commented before the book comes out on on some of the stories that have made headlines over the last couple of weeks, whether it's NBC Universal or or our former president. There, is there solace in any way of knowing you're not alone in this? I think that that's another yes or no hmm. answer. I mean, it's. I told somebody the other day, it's the unfortunate gift that keeps on giving. Hmm. And by that, I mean, we can still talk about it and still try to shed light on it. But the bad part is that it's still happening. And, you know, culturally, companies are just going to have to learn to have the right people in charge. And the, the perfect example that I can give, John, is where I am now at PGA Tour Live. I mean, they don't put up with egos. They don't put up with bullies. They don't put up with bad attitudes. I was so amazed the first time that our programming went to black. Nobody was cussing. Nobody was screaming. Nobody was in trouble. They just fixed the problem and moved on and forgot about it. So I think that it's, it's, it's who's at the top and instilling sort of this is, this is what's acceptable and this is what's not. And it's really simple. You know, you don't have to have people watch videos like that's what would happen at Golf Channel. People would watch these corporate videos that they paid thousands and thousands of dollars to produce. And then the same behavior still happened. So they were just checking a box. Well, at PGA Tour Live, we're not watching videos. We just know that if you act that way, you're no longer going to get a job. You're no longer going to be asked to come back. And I'm really grateful of that. I'm I'm more aware of it, obviously, than, than ever. But just watching how they operate, especially from the top, like they really care about you, which is a crazy philosophy. <laughs> um but it's, it's really been a breath of fresh air. I make about one-fourth the money that I used to, but I can tell you I'm a lot happier. It's, it's so much better. I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't change it. Um, it's, it's really just been an eye-opening experience altogether. Um, what, what were your feelings, and did they all rise and bubble up to the top again when you wrote the book? And then I'm just kind of curious about this, Lisa, because this is what I do. I assume you've done the audio version of the book. Well, it's interesting that you've asked that. I'm a big Audible person. Uh-huh. I, re- I rarely, because especially with traveling, I mean, I listen, I listen to a book a week. And now that I've written a memoir, I listen to a lot of memoirs. Mm-hmm. And getting this audiobook contract, for some reason, has been difficult. I'm, mm. I'm working on it. We've had an offer. We're, we're going back and forth. But yes, there, okay. if I have to do it on my own... <laughs> there will be one just because I'm, I'm an audio book person. And I can tell you this, I wouldn't, of all the memoirs that I've listened to lately, and it's probably been 10, there's only been one where the author did not narrate. And that was Nelson Mandela's autobiography, just because he was older and feeble. And, but every person who writes a memoir, I don't care who you are, should, should read the book. It just, it makes it more real. You can feel the emotion so, um, well, well, that yes, was it's definitely high on my radar. All right. Well, since you haven't done it, that was going to kind of be my question. I'm, I, I'll be curious. I'll be curious when you do get in that studio and begin reading the book and and the emotions flare up again because you're supposed to read it in such a way. I'm curious to see how all of that goes. But that's just me because I do what I do. Well, I can tell you there are certain chapters that I'm probably going to have, you know, I'll have to step outside and take deep breaths. (laughs) 
So there's no doubt about it. And writing it, I think at the time when I wrote it, I had, I was just past the point of just uh, being so angry. And so when I wrote it, it was almost this release. I didn't feel those emotions as much. But I think you're right. I think when I do read it out loud, it will bring some back some of those old heated sort of fiery emotions that I have. I mean, I'm, like I said in the book, I'm, I've always been a defender of people and I've always been a defender of myself. And so I think when you sort of have that kind of personality and you're fully involved with, with the story as in reading it for an audio book, you can't help but have all those heated emotions come back up again. Tell me your thoughts and feelings, I guess maybe before starting to write the book, about what this may or may not do to your ability to to stay in the industry. Oh, I 100% thought that it would kill them. Um, But I can tell you, I I have no interest in going back to traditional media. You know, I'm not hunting down a broadcast agent to try to get me a job at, you know, a a network. I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. I, I really want to use this book to be able to sort of take my career in a different direction whether it's, you know, through speaking engagements to, to different women or companies or, you know, through a podcast that I actually started and will be picking back up again soon just to have these discussions. So I think there are a lot of ways to sort of stay in the business without doing it the traditional way that I have. You know, I've had that experience and that was great and I'm grateful for it. But now this hopefully will open doors to do something that's a little bit more meaningful for me down the road. And, you know, still be able to call a little bit of golf on PGA Tour Live every now and then. What would what would you, Lisa, Lisa in 2023, tell Lisa when she started working at Golf Channel? What what do you know now that you wish you knew then? That's a great question. I think I would say it's going to be a roller coaster ride, but you can handle roller coasters. Just buckle that seatbelt a little bit tighter. And when you look back, think about the great things with the ride. So I say that to say, you know, while I've talked a lot about these experiences and these negative experiences at Golf Channel, there were way, way many more wonderful experiences from the friendships that I made, from the tournaments that I got to go to, I talk in the book about the first time that I got a, a text message from Nancy Lopez because Nancy was my hero growing up. And then I got to do a golf channel Academy teaching segment with her. And it was just the most sort of surreal experience of my professional career because here I'm sitting, having lunch with Nancy Lopez. And she literally, when we finished the entire day, sent me a text message to make sure that I made it home safely. I just, I remember taking a screenshot of it on my phone and sending it to my mom. I said, Nancy Lopez just text me. Like, this is crazy. So despite the the bad things that happen and the things that I talk about in the book, and I do talk about some positive things. There's a chapter in there called the B team because we had so much fun, John. (laughs) It's like with anything, you know, you, you have your close friends and you really appreciate your time together at work. And we had great times. Uh, especially in studio with Golf Central. But, you know, I don't, I don't want that to get lost in, in the story of, of the bad things that happened either because there were so many great people, so many great memories. And I do get asked that a, long, a lot. 
do I regret going to Golf Channel? And I never hesitate. Absolutely not. Because it was such a wonderful time of my career and of my life. And there are so many memories that I appreciate, so many opportunities like meeting Nancy Lopez and so many others that I'll never forget. And they really shaped my career and shaped my life. And everything has come full circle for me. So I have a lot to be grateful for. Here's a couple of questions that I saved by not having you on the program in years past. Tell me, tell, <laughs> tell me how you feel about the state of the game now. Tell me, tell me your thoughts about the PGA Tour and Live Golf and, and the LPGA. How do, do you think golf is in a good spot right now? Well, I think the PGA Tour is certainly um, growing exponentially. I mean, look at look at the broadcasting contracts and the money that these guys are being paid, and they do have a lot of that to thank for Live Golf. Now, I'm not a Live Golf fan because, as a woman and a and a female activist, I can never support anything where the Saudis are directly handing somebody a check. And like I get people say, you know, all sorts of companies are doing business with the Saudis and China and Yemen and et cetera. But you're, if you're playing live golf, you're directly getting a check from NBS. So let's be honest about that. Um, I do think that if, if live eventually goes to 72 holes, then they should be in the discussion for getting world ranking points. Um, albeit not anywhere close to what you get on the PGA tour, because what, how many guys are playing? I don't even know. I, I have not watched one with broadcast. Makes two of us. But <laughs> thank you. Um, so there's that. Um, but the the growth of the PGA Tour has been phenomenal. The LPGA has been very stagnant for a lot of reasons. Uh, the broadcast agreement that was that was signed years ago has really stifled the tour. That needs to be redone. Uh, you know, obviously, I've been very outspoken about Golf Channel, and look, I fought these battles while I worked there. Just then treating the LPGA tour like they don't matter. And it's, it's obvious on the broadcast. I mean, you look at the international crown this week, that's being played in, at Harding park in San Francisco. They don't have a reporter there. It's, it's just unheard of, but I also throw it back to the LPGA tour because they're not fighting these battles. And, you know, at some point they are going to have to go to bat and, and really stick up for the tour to say, you know what, we've put up with this for long enough and we're not going to, to do it anymore. Our fans deserve better. Our players deserve better. Our sponsors deserve better. So there's that. And then then there's the latter part, I think, about the players themselves. I, I think, like, I'm a, you know, I'm a sports fan. I think that there is a responsibility with these players to, to show some more enthusiasm, to really show some fighting spirit. It's what we as sports fans love to see. I love to see it. You see it all the time on the PGA Tour, whether it's celebration or frustration, just a little bit more of that. And I think that if they were made aware of that, maybe we would see a little bit more of it. I mean, you can't change people's personalities. John Rahm's a perfect example. He's a Spaniard. He's always going to get fired up. I personally love it because I always get fired up when I play golf. But you never see that on the LPGA Tour. And so if you're trying to bring in new viewers, you want to see that spirit. You want to see that spirit of competition. And so I think from a player's perspective, those are, those are the things that I would like to see the players do better. Then there's the, the tour's responsibility with the broadcast and various things. And then, you know, the network itself in terms of being a broadcast partner. How much golf do you play these days? 
I live on a golf course, John, Good. and Good. I play once a month. <laughs> so, that's bad. Yeah. It's good that I live on a golf course and bad that I don't play that often. My course is really hard. It's very tight. A lot of LPGA Tour players play out here at Orange Tree. It's where Payne Stewart and Tiger back in the day, they used to come here to prep for the U.S. Open because, I mean, some of the fairways are six paces wide, and then there's OB another two paces from that. So I patiently go out and – you know, lower my expectations out here. But I keep saying one of these days I will play more, but it hasn't happened yet. The book is called Troublemaker, a memoir of sexism, retaliation, and the fight they didn't see coming. She is Lisa Cornwell. Uh, as I said in the beginning, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I apologize it took so long. Lisa, thank you for saying yes to this. Congratulations on the book. Nothing but, but good wishes for you. Lisa, thank you for this. Thank you, John. And I will say yes anytime. Have me back. I'd love to come on.